through Exodus chapter 3. We'll be looking at Exodus chapters 3 and 4. Sometimes we churches do the same thing over and over and over and over again, and we don't explain why we do it. We just assume everyone knows what we're doing. And today I thought we would take a moment before the sermon begins, as you're flipping there, to explain what a sermon is. What are we doing? Why do we do this every single week? The short answer is the Bible says so. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, preach the word. We are commanded by God to preach the word. So we do. And what is preaching? There's different definitions. What I try to do as a preacher, what Joel tries to do as a preacher, and what Carl preaches is very simple. We're not here to entertain you, though that can help. We are here to explain what the words in this book mean. And to then explain how you adjust your life to get with its program. That's what we do. Because we actually think these words come from God. That's what we think about the Bible, right? It's quite a claim, isn't it? Like, that is a big, big claim. Like, God wrote a book. And so you'd be a fool to not read it. There's an agnostic professor who loves to attack Christians in North Carolina, and he starts all of his classes off with his freshmen by saying, who in here is a Christian? And hands all go up. Everybody raises their hands, and he says, who in here has read all of Harry Potter? And everyone's hands goes up. And he said, who in here has read all the Bible? And like three hands go up. You see the problem there? If God wrote a book, if you actually think he wrote a book, you would want to know what it says. So we, as preachers, we try to explain to you what the words mean, and we do it, this is key, we do it as an act of worship to the Lord. It is our joy to bring all of our life under the Lordship of Christ and to do everything we do as an act of worship to Him. So we rejoice in telling you the good news found within the Bible about Jesus And we consider it a privilege to help you know better, by the grace of God, how to adjust your life to fit with what this book says. That's what preaching is. So, with that said, we'll jump into Exodus chapters 3 and 4. We've just seen in previous sermons, Egypt is enslaved. They are in big, big trouble. There's a new king who doesn't remember Pharaoh. God's people are being beaten. They are being forced to build things and... Terrible labor, that wasn't working. Israel continued to grow. Pharaoh was afraid of the Israelites, so he said, I know what I'll do. I will kill all the baby boys, two years old and younger. Well, newborns, I'll kill all the newborns. That's what he says. And yet, Israel continues to grow. One of the babies gets saved, right? Do you remember who got saved out of the, uh, out of the child infanticide? Who, who did God save? What's his name? Moses, there we go. And so Moses gets saved, and he's rescued in the heart of Egypt, actually, by Pharaoh's daughter. And he grows up, in, actually, as royalty. And one day, he sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite, and he goes to rescue the Israelite. And in the process, he actually kills the Egyptian. I personally don't think this was, like, intended murder or anything like that. The guy's getting beaten. He goes to help the Israelite. 
Egyptian dies in the process. Now he's a murderer, so he has to head for the hills. Or in this case, head for the desert. <laughs> so he heads for the desert, right? And that's where we pick up today in chapter 3. God's people are crying out, and now we pick up in chapter 3. So today in our sermon, we'll look at three main things. We'll go all the way through chapter 4, and we'll look at three C's. Three C's. God's concern. We'll look at God's commission and God's consistency. Concern, commission, consistency. Try to make it real easy for you to log that in your brain. The goal is to make outlines simple enough for you to remember them throughout your week. So that way when you're at work, you can recall it. Or that way when you're cooking supper, you can recall the outline, you know. So I hope, I hope that works for you. God's concern, God's commission, and God's consistency. So we'll start with God's concern. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. So I'll read those, okay? Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire, so that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. That's an ancient Hebrew way of saying, yes, what is it? Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. Remember that word. You might have taskmasters. Slave drivers, remember this word, it'll be important for later. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now... The cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So this is God's concern we see here. Just real quick, what did we just read? Moses is out tending the flock of his father-in-law, and this name kills me every time. I just, his name is Jethro, and I can't but help think of the Beverly Hillbillies without fail. I wish it wasn't such a mental block, but I've got to say it to get it out of my head, and it helps me keep going. So, yes, his father-in-law's name is Jethro. Maybe Bodine, I'm not sure. But uh, his father-in-law's name is Jethro. He's tending the flock. He's in the desert where there's not much shrubbery, and you wouldn't expect there to be fires, because to have fire, you need stuff to burn, right? So he's just... Him and the sheep out in the middle of nowhere. And then lo and behold, there's a big fire just right over there. And he's like, whoa, what's that? So he goes and he looks and goes, it's a bush on fire. But it keeps burning and burning and burning and burning. 
which is impossible. That shouldn't happen, right? So he's thoroughly intrigued. So he's interested, and he approaches, and then God says, Moses, Moses. And now he's like, wait, the bush is talking to me. (laughs) This fire is speaking my name twice. Okay, this is pretty strange, right? And so he responds pretty, he's a composed actually, more composed than I would be. He says, here I am, like here am I. I, He's doing pretty well in my opinion. And God says, don't come any closer, the ground is holy. In other words, this is separate, unusual, special ground. And it's not because the ground is special, it's because God is there. Where God is, it is holy. Because God is holy. We'll see this again at Mount Sinai. Where God shows up as fire, and he tells the people, make sure you consecrate, same basic word in Hebrew for make holy, make sure you make yourselves holy before you come and see me. Why? Because if you're unholy, you cannot be in the presence of the Holy One. So that's what's going on here. I'm so holy, just stop where you are, Moses. And then he says who he is. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's the idea is God remembers the promises he's made to these people. I'm that God, because there's lots of false gods out there, and he has to say which one he is. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is really cool, this little detail. You know, it says Moses hid his face for fear of looking at God. Can you imagine? It's like this blazing fire. I mean, think of a gigantic bonfire. I mean, it caught his attention from a ways off, right? And so what do you do? You shield your face, right? How do you have a conversation with a fire without your face getting melted off? And yet, it's not the fire that's the main reason he looks away, is it? He said, I dare not look on God. This is so cool. And then the Lord says what happens, right? I've seen the misery. I know what's happening. I am concerned. And I want us to look especially carefully at verses 9 and a piece from verse 7. Because we'll see this language show up at the end of our sermon today, Lord willing. He says, And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and here it is, And I have seen, so, And now I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. How are the Egyptians oppressing them? Through these taskmasters, these slave drivers back in verse 7. So just remember this. And now I have seen the taskmasters. That's basically what this is saying. We will see that quoted later on in Zechariah, and it's talking about what Jesus will come to fix for us. So this is all going to get switched from Moses to Jesus later on. So we need to pay attention to these clues. So God sees his people. He says they are being beaten. They're being whipped. They're being forced to do all this terrible work. I see it. I know it. It's my son. It's Israel, my firstborn son. I'm going to go rescue them. I have come down to save them. At that point, I'm like, yeah, this is cool. What's God going to do? Right? Like, the kid's in trouble, so mom picks up a car to like lift the car off the kid. You hear stories like this. There's actually one I found recently. Um, woman named Lydia Anjou in northern Quebec, whose two sons were in danger, and she fought a polar bear to rescue her two sons. You can look it up. She fought a polar bear. She actually fought it with her fists, got knocked down, swatted, stood back up, continued fighting it. 
I mean, what do you do when your child's in danger? You, you do what it takes. So you're like, what is God going to do? And shockingly, he says, I'm going to send you, Moses. <laughs> it's not what you would expect. So I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. I just want to pause first and focus in on this idea of God hearing their cry. That's what God says, right? I heard their cry. It reminds me of a story I read in the news this past week, back from where I moved from, back from Minnesota. I wonder if anybody here has ever heard of Bemidji, Minnesota. If you're from Bemidji, Minnesota, you say, don't you know, and I'm from Minnesota. <laughs> They've got a real strong accent up there. It's, cold. it's colder than cold up in Bemidji, Minnesota. And this guy, he wanted to go out on his uh, snow, snowmobile out on the lake. And uh, he thought it was fine, but it wasn't. He cra- it cracked. He fell in. He's in the lake. He's standing on top of his sunken snowmobile. It's who knows how cold. And uh, he's freezing to death in the water. He manages to climb out of the water somehow. He crawls on the ice until it's strong enough for him to walk. For some reason, there's one soft spot there. And so he walks in total about 100 yards finds a house, just lays down outside the house, and what does he do? Just screams his head off. He doesn't even know if anyone's in the house. He just cries and cries and cries, and he does not stop crying. And finally, the wife hears in the house. The husband had bad hearing because of his time in the war. So he can't hear, but the wife hears and says, go find him. So the husband and the friend go out and they look for this guy, They can't find him because everything's iced over. It's so echoey. They can't figure out where he is, actually. So they finally find him. And by the time they find him, everything is frozen to him. You know, he's freezing to, he's becoming a human icicle. So they get his jacket off after they break the ice off of his jacket. They break the ice off, they get his jacket off, and he he lives to tell about it. And what happened? He was just crying out, help, help help. That's the best thing he could do. And this story and that illustration from Bemidji, Minnesota, it makes me think that God wants to hear us. He wants to hear you cry out to him. I loved last sermon when Joel pointed out the people of Israel weren't even crying out to the Lord. They were just crying out. This is terrible. And crying they continued. And God heard. He heard. And it makes me think that we try so many things before we turn to the Lord and cry out to him. We try other things. So I just confess my sin before you. This past week, I have not cried out to the Lord. I get to the end of the week and I think, why has this week been so hard and so busy and so stressful? It's because I spent more time trying to fix my problems than I did asking God to help. That's why. So I just confess that before you, not as someone who's got this all figured out. But when we struggle, we do everything except pray sometimes. We overeat, we turn to food, right? We, watch, we, we, we binge watch TV. Like, I'm going to go watch all of this TV show. That's more the younger generation. To take my mind off of it. I'm just going to go listen to my favorite songs, which are fine, but not in the place of prayer. Or there's the other option, whatever calls, whatever is stressing me out, I'm just going to work so hard I get it done. 
So then it won't stress me out anymore. I'm just going to beat it to submission. My will will be more stronger, stronger than this. And the whole time God is there saying, what? Are you going to ask for help? I'm concerned for you. I see you crying out. Just ask me. Whatever you turn to when you struggle, that is your refuge. Does that make sense? Whatever you turn to when you are struggling, that is your refuge. That's where you go for help, right? And what does the Bible say? Psalm 18.10. I'm sorry, Proverbs 18.10. The Lord is our refuge. The righteous run to him and are safe. Pick a good refuge, church. Pick a good refuge. Call on his name. Cry out to him. He will hear you. And he might not answer it in the way you think. Moses was ready for God to come down and do it. Get him, God, get him. And then God says, leads us to our commission, right? No, Moses, I'm sending you. Verse 10. So let's read verse 10 here. So now, go. (laughs) I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Um, Excuse me? God, why don't you do it? You're God. I'm Moses. I'm not sure if you're aware, God, but I left Egypt for a reason, right? Like, they they don't want me there. Um, Why don't you do it? Doesn't that make sense? Like, why doesn't God just do it? You ever wondered that? And the answer is, God likes to use people. Throughout the Bible, he's always using the most screwed up people to bring about his ends. I mean, what's more impressive? Doing everything yourself? Or building people up who would never have been able to do it and getting them to do it. God is interested in seeking glory for himself by taking nobodies and turning them into somebodies. So if you're a nobody, welcome to the club. Church is the club of the dropouts, the losers, the uncool, the can't hack it. And yet Jesus, by his grace, makes us strong and he equips us and he actually allows us to get things done for his glory purposes. Moses, you can tell this is what Moses is thinking. You've got the wrong guy. Because what does Moses do for the next chapter and a half? He says no, basically. (laughs) This is what he says. This is what he says. Verses 11 through 12, he says, Who am I that I should go? Verses 13 through 22, he says, Okay, if I go, then who are you to send me? Like, who are you talking to me, Bush? Chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. says, God, if I go, they might not believe me, so maybe I shouldn't go. (laughs) Chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, he's like, okay, let's say I go and they would believe me, but that doesn't fix the problem that I can't really speak very well. Never mind the fact that he's been speaking actually quite fine this entire time. (laughs) And then finally, in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, Moses just says, send someone else. I mean, you see what's going on here at the end, right? It's finally just, just send someone else, please. Um, Anybody? Maybe that tumbleweed there. Just not me. Just don't send me, God. And each time, the Lord is so gracious. He really is. So verses 11 through 12, when he says, who am I? 
that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Look what God says in verse 12. I love this. And God said, I will be with you. There's the answer. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship or serve God on this mountain. And that's a tough sign to swallow. Do you realize why that sign is so hard to believe? Just catch it. Go, Moses. Go talk to Pharaoh. Okay. What's the proof that you'll be with me and I go, when I go to Pharaoh? Well, the proof will come after you've done everything. Eventually, you will come back to this mountain with people. And when that happens, you, would have, you then can look back and know I was with you the whole time. You see how much faith this is requiring of Moses? Are you catching it? This is pretty, pretty tough stuff. The key is, I will be with you. You forget, Moses, that I'm not sending you alone. I will be by your side the whole way. I will give you what you need to do what you need to do. Then he says, who are you, O God? Verses 13 through 22. And you get that. Basically, if I go and they say, who sent you to me? Who sent you to come save us, Israelites? What's your name, God? What's your name? And you get it in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Or you might have Yahweh has sent me to you. Or you might have Lord in all capital letters has sent me to you. You have any, any of those. It all means the same thing. And there's a huge question throughout the history of the church. What does it mean? I am that I am, or I am who I am, or literally translated, I will be who I will be. <laughs> it's pretty enigmatic. Like, that's not clear. Like, hi, what's your name? I am. What's your last name? Um, I am. It's your first and your last name? I am. <laughs> like, it's not very clear at all. It's like, what, what is going on here? So there's a few options. The probably most common option is this is God just saying, I am eternal. I am the eternal one. I am. That, that is, now, I am. Period. I am. The problem with that interpretation is it doesn't really fit in with the passage at all. Who sent you to us? Moses? Um, the eternal God. Okay. It doesn't mean too much in context. There's another option, though. Back in verse 12, he said, I will be with you. It's from the verb... Haya in Hebrew. I joke that was my oldest daughter's first word. She was like nine months old. She said, Haya. And I was like, oh, she's speaking Hebrew. It makes her daddy proud. Um, I will be with you. Haya. And then he says, what is, what is your name? He says, I am. Which comes from the word Haya. It's to be verb. Haya. So the idea, it seems to me, and a lot of scholars, is this. I can't go, God. I can't do it. You can go. I will be with you. Well, what's your name? My name? I will. I will be. I will be what? In context, the answer is, I will be with you. That's the answer in context. It's a shorthand form of saying, what's your name? My name is the one who will be with you. 
That's who I am. I am the one who loves to help his people. I think this makes the most sense. Next objection. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. They won't believe me or listen to me. And then God gives Moses these three really cool signs, right? I wonder if you know the three signs in your head. I wonder if you can remember them. So, first sign, he throws a staff on the ground and it becomes a snake. snake. And this is kind of funny. It says, and Moses ran away. <laughs> I would too. Can you imagine you throw your staff on the ground and it becomes a snake? I'd be like, ooh, I'm getting out of here. And the question is like, how do I get it back? Like, I just want my staff back, right? So he bends down and grabs the tail and it becomes a staff again. So that's a sign. You do that in front of your people, they'll believe you, God says. Second one, verses 6 and 7, stick your hand into your coat pocket, basically is what it says. Now pull it out, and it's white like leprosy. It's, his skin has just deteriorated and rotted, and it's white. It's like disgusting. Now stick it back in. He sticks it back in, he pulls it out, and his hand is healed. He said, nobody in the world can do that. That's a miracle. You do that in front of the people, they'll think that you're actually more than just Moses. They'll think that you are the representative for God Almighty. But, if they don't believe that, chapter 4, verse, was it, 8? Chapter 4, verse 8. If they do not believe or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they don't believe the two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. Then the water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. So there you go. He's got three really cool signs. So the idea is believe in Moses because of his signs, right? That's the idea. Next objection, I can't speak in verses 10 through 12. And God says, I gave you the mouth I gave you. I'm your creator. I know how well you can speak. God has been patient this entire time. Then you got verses 13 through 17. Moses says in verse 13, send someone else. And it is only now in verse 14 that the anger of the Lord is kindled. He's pretty patient, actually. He's pretty patient. And yeah, even though his anger is kindled, God is still gracious. He says, fine, Aaron can go with you. I mean, he is so gracious and kind to Moses. Over and over and over. You would expect God to do it himself. And yet God finds Moses. And Moses doesn't want to do it. And can you blame him? Let's say it's like 1865, or I forget when the Civil War was. Maybe 1875. I think it was 60s. Um, I got my history guy nodding his head here. And you're here in New York, right? And God appears to you, and he says, Go speak to Jefferson Davis down in the, of the Confederate States and tell them to release the slaves. Do it. You. Make it happen. What would your response be? You'd be like, excuse me? You want me to go release all the slaves in the South? Because I'm going to go talk to Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederate States? I mean, you would be confused too, right? This is where Moses is at. And what's his reassurance? I will be with you. I just tell you, if God could send a man to release a nation of slaves. I don't care what you're facing right now. 
It's not bigger than that. It's not. It's not. If you belong to him, he is with you. Put your problem and right now, your biggest problem, and put it next to releasing all the southern slaves in the mid-1860s by yourself. And compare them and see which one would be harder. I think it's probably the southern slaves. God could actually use you to do that. Believe it. Do you? Believe it or not? Because that's the question. Do you believe he is with you? Do you believe he is helping you? If you believe, you will go. Whatever it is. I can't make it through work. You can. God is with you. I can't talk to this person about that issue. You can. You can do it. If you believe God is with you, because he is. Isn't that what he say at the end of Matthew? And lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20. God is with you. Question is, do you believe him? Do you? Third, God's consistency. Now you get this crazy story. This is crazy. So I'll read verses 18 through the end of the chapter, and you'll know the crazy part when we get to it. You'll be like, yeah, that was crazy. I have no idea what just happened. Okay, I don't say crazy in a derogatory way. I mean, this is unusual in every sense of the word. You thought a burning bush was strange. This is stranger. Okay, So, he's supposed to go, Moses now, and go talk to Aaron, go talk to his brother. He's going to go back to Egypt and make this happen (laughs) with God's help. Right? So, Verses 18 and following. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Moses is on board. He's ready to go. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, here you see God's consistency. He knows the future. When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. And Pharaoh's never heard of Yahweh before. This is what the Lord, this is what Yahweh says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. You see the logic? You're murdering my firstborn son. You're killing the babies. You're throwing them in the river. You're killing what is to me a firstborn son. So equal punishment will be the death of your firstborn son. It's consistent. And verse 24. This is bizarre. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Who's the him? But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Okay, that's not normal. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Continuing on, we'll come back to that. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron 
brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them they ha- and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. So the plan is going on. The signs have been done. The people are believing. Israel is on board. Moses is trusting. Things are looking up. But there's that one strange story in the middle that you can't just skip over. Here's what's going on. Moses' son, oldest son, firstborn son. You notice that? Firstborn son had not been circumcised. And God actually comes to kill either him or Moses. It's not super clear which one in the, in the passage. Why? Why? Later on in chapter 34, God will say, I am gracious and loving and compassionate and slow to anger. So this seems completely out of character. What is going on here? Well, remember, verses 22 and 23, he told Moses, Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, if you don't treat my firstborn better, your firstborn will be killed. So you see how this is shaping up. There are two categories. There is God's firstborn, Israel. There's Israel on one side, and there is Pharaoh on the other. I think you can call it everyone else. Pharaoh is representing the whole world here. You've got Israel and the whole world on the other side. And Moses is coming to save the day, and Moses' son has not been circumcised. To be circumcised back then was a sign that you were a member of... Israel. He was not a member of Israel. He was not an Israelite. He had not received the covenant right of circumcision that is detailed in Genesis chapter 17. Since he had not been aligned with Israel, whose side was he on? Not Israel. And what will happen to the not Israel side? Firstborn children will die. This is what's going on. You're seeing the consistency of God here. He's saying, it's either my firstborn that's going to die, or that firstborn that's going to die. And you need to figure out what side you're aligning with. And Moses, for whatever reason, had his son on the fence. So God comes in and says, I don't care who you are or whose son you are. If you are not aligned all the way with my people, you will perish. This reminds me of my high school senior English teacher, Mrs. LeBlanc. She was, oh, she oversaw the JAD Club, Jackets Against Destructive Decisions, down in Louisiana. It's basically the anti-drug program at the school, right? And her own son, she was accused of showing favoritism by a student. And I just heard her, under her breath, say, favoritism? I didn't let my son join JAD because he dips. And she had my respect right then. Her son was using tobacco products. So she didn't let her son join the club. She was so consistent. And you see a similar thing here with God. There are two groups. There's Israel, my firstborn, and there's everyone else. And the firstborn of that everyone else group will perish if they're not part of Israel. And God is making that point clear to Moses. He's not messing around. Now, How do we respond to this? We could talk about the justice of God, how he shows no partiality. But I want to talk about one other thing. And after this, we'll move towards wrapping up. Back in chapter 4, 
verse 21, it says, make sure you show these signs to Pharaoh, right? And then before that, it said, show the signs to the people of Israel so they will listen. I've already told you that in a moment, this will all flip, and we'll see all of this is a picture of what Jesus is to do later on. And it's not an accident that Jesus came and did signs. He did signs so that people would believe. John 10, 38. If you don't believe me, at least believe me on account of the works I do. What are the works? They're normally called signs in the book of John. Jesus has come and he did signs, miracles, to testify to who he is. Just like we saw with Moses. You see the same thing in John 14, 11. Believe me at least for the miracles I do. I want you to know, I don't know where you are with Jesus. You members of new creation, I know where you are. You're trusting in Jesus. But those of you who aren't members of new creation, I don't know where you stand with Jesus. And I want to challenge you, and I want to encourage the believers with a little history here. Jesus is eminently believable because he was a miracle worker. He was a miracle worker. We have no definitive proof that Buddha did miracles. We have no proof that Muhammad did any miracles. Jesus, it is indisputable he did miracles. How do I know it's indisputable he did miracles? Because everyone agrees. Critics of Christianity and proponents of it. The Bible's clear. He did signs and wonders. But you can even go and read the Talmud, collection of like 5th century rabbinical teachings and philosophy. And you can go and you can look in the Talmud, and this is what it says. It has been taught on the eve of Passover, they hanged Yeshu. That's Jesus. And an announcer went out in front of him for 40 days saying, he is going to be stoned. Which is strange, he wasn't stoned, it was... He was hanged, like it said, the sentence before. But listen to this. He is going to be stoned because he practiced sorcery and enticed Israel and led them astray. What is sorcery? It's miracles through, through, the, through the dark arts. It's miracles through the devil. That's what sorcery is. We know Jesus did it through the Holy Spirit, but what are his critics? What are his enemies? What are the Jewish enemies of Jesus centuries later saying? They're saying, you know that Jesus guy? Don't listen to him. He was a sorcerer. That means he did miracles, doesn't it? He did miracles, and it can't be explained away. Even his enemies admit he did miracles. They just call it sorcery, which is exactly what the book of Matthew says, isn't it? Jesus does miracles, and what do his enemies do? They come up to him and they say, you cast out demons by Beelzebul. In other words, what did they tell Jesus? You're doing miracles, you're doing signs through the devil. What do we see five centuries later in the Talmud? They're still saying the same thing. Who was Jesus? He was the guy who did miracles through the devil. Or maybe he did miracles from God. But you can't deny, you cannot deny that he did miracles. Everyone agrees. There was a man who came to earth And he actually fed over 5,000 people with nothing more than a sack lunch. He actually did it. That is a fact you must deal with. This is who Jesus was. He is known to have been a miracle worker. This source, Joseph Klausner, a Jewish researcher, combines the ancient Jewish testimony, and this is what he comes up with. 
there are some reliable theories finding the fact that his name was Yeshua of Nazareth and that he practiced sorcery. That is to say, he did miracles. There it is. So I tell you this. Just as they believed in Moses, that he actually was sent by God because he did miracles, I tell you, if you're not trusting in Jesus, trust in him. He actually did miracles. This is indisputable. The question is, did he do it because he's God or did he do it because he's the devil? Those are your two options. Christians, be encouraged. We're on the right side. (laughs) He's incredible. He is incredible. We're on the right side. Now I want to move towards concluding. Let's go and uh, let's consider this question as we move towards concluding. It's helpful to know when you read a Bible, who, who are you? Who are you in the story? So we just went through two, two whole chapters, right? And if you were to pick out who are you in this story, who would you be? Hopefully not Pharaoh. You're probably not God, right? You're not God. Be Moses. Or is there another option? I'll tell you who you are. You're the suffering people. That's what God's people do. They suffer. And they cry out. And they beg for a rescuer to come. Learn your place within the biblical story. You're the one who needs a savior. And this whole story is a picture of Jesus. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 8 picks up on this story. If you have your Bible, turn to Zechariah chapter 9. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 1,480. We won't get in the context here, but verse 8. Verse 8 alludes back to our passage in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 and 9. Verse 8 goes back to our story and says this is all about Jesus coming. Zechariah 9.8 says, I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. Never again will a taskmaster. Same word, and it's not a common word in the Old Testament. It occurs only about 23, 24 times. Never again will a taskmaster, slave driver, overrun my people. For now, I am seeing. That's so similar to what we saw back in Exodus chapter 3. He said, now I see their oppression from the taskmasters. For now I see, what does he see? The taskmasters. And what does he do to fix the problem in Zechariah? Read the next verse. How do you fix the suffering of the people of God? The next verse shows you how you fix it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt on the foal of a donkey. That's the solution to the suffering. God sees the suffering, so who does he send? Who rides on the donkey to save his people? Say it if you know it. Jesus. Within Zechariah, it's a new exodus all the way. God's people will be suffering again. And so he will send Jesus riding on a donkey to save them. And one day, verse 10 and 11, verse 10 will happen. Won't need chariots anymore. Won't need war horses anymore. The battle bow will be broken. There will be peace among the nations. And we wait for Jesus to come back and do that again. Jesus has come, just like Moses, 
with signs. And he has come to end our suffering. And he ends it the first time in part. The suffering that we have caused, the sin that we have done to others, he takes the sin into himself and is punished. He receives the punishment. God condemns sin, punishes the sin that he absorbs into himself, so that way we don't have to be punished for it. And we are forgiven. And Jesus will come again. He will come again. And he will end all suffering forever. So I conclude by telling you to suffer in hope. Hear me. Suffer in hope. I had a lady tell me something the other day. She said, oh, my cars wouldn't start. If it's not one thing, it's the other. There's always something wrong. I say, well, yeah. This is earth. It's not heaven. What do you expect? Really? Things don't go your way. Yeah, I know. They don't go mine either. They don't go any of our ways. This is the world of suffering. It hurts a lot all the time. We are the ones who suffer, but we don't suffer without hope. We suffer in hope, knowing there's an end coming. There's a new Moses coming who will kill Pharaoh and flood the enemies with water, and we will be free on the other side. There's a day coming when God will see our suffering and act decisively, and it will be over forever. You suffer, I know. You suffer verbally. You do. You go to work, and people say terrible things about you because you don't live the way they want you to live. That happens. All the time to Christians. We Christians suffer, suffer, suffer because we're, we're called bigots all the time. Just turn on the TV. It's like a bigot fest because we don't think certain sexual acts are acceptable. So we're bigots. Or we suffer because we are called close-minded and arrogant and know-it-alls because we actually think that our way is the correct way. We think that because Jesus came and did miracles and died and rose from the dead, but never mind that. And there's Christians who suffer around the world daily, physically. There's a decent chance there's a Christian dying right now for the name of Jesus. There's a decent chance it's happening. We suffer, but we suffer in hope. Hear me. One day it'll end, but it's not today. Put your boots on and get ready. Because it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. But here's your promise. He's with you. He is with you. And he will always be with you. He will never leave you. Ever. So what is more real to you? The pain of the suffering or the promise of God? Ow, this hurts. Or please be near me, Lord Jesus. What is more true and real to you? I pray it's the nearness of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we do not suffer without hope. There's a day coming when the Pharaoh of this world will be thrown down. The new Moses, Jesus Christ, will be elevated up and we will all hail him as the deliverer, the rescuer, the one who ends our suffering. But that day is not today. We wait in hope. We say, come, Lord Jesus, and end our suffering. But until you do, 
We know you are with us by the Spirit, and that is enough. We trust you. We believe you. And we know you will not forsake us. So be near to us, Lord Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen.